about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is Professor Alan Jameson. You all right, mate? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're trying something a little bit different and I can see you. Still don't know quite how I'm going to put this out. It might just be, we'll put it on our YouTube channel, but we thought we'd try something new for the Christmas episode. That's what I'm going to say. It doesn't matter because it's Christmas, so you can do what you like. You can do what you like at Christmas. Yeah, apparently so. I'm rocking some mulled wine. Got a little bit of wine myself. Ooh, fancy. Christmas episode. I'll bring you tidings of comfort and joy. Okay, to dive into some news. So a new research out has found that, well, suggested that brainless sponges have neuron-like cells. So this was a team working with the freshwater sponge. Not super in our wheelhouse, but it calls back to a previous episode where we were talking about how simple animals like a sponge seem to make decisions. This research identified 18 different types of cells within the sponge, within a single sponge based on gene expression, and one cell type stood out that they've nicknamed the neuroid because it had long tendrils resembling those of neurons. And so this seems to be along the inside of the sponge, so along the gut cells. It was new to me at least to learn that neurons, it's thought, may have originated twice from gut cells and from muscle cells. Uh, I would have thought muscle cells, but uh, no, that was interesting. There is debate over whether comb jellies or sponges are the oldest extant life form currently, but it's leaning towards sponges. So there's a little bit of pushback about this was maybe too big of a conclusion, that there isn't really a sign that these are communicating between levels of the sponge. They had a lot of vesicles in them, so they were producing something. But if they were associated with digestion, then that could explain that as well. So really early finding there, just thought it was interesting to call back to a previous podcast. Are you saying that sponges are super smart? No, but we might know how they think. This cell doesn't seem very sure what it's doing. All right, so what does a sponge think about? Well, based on our last experience, it thinks about which direction it is going to very, very slowly move in the deep sea and leave a little snail trail behind it. Oh, okay. One of the news articles from, I think it was the genetics episode, it was when me and Heather were on. During the dark ages, you mean? Dark ages without you when you were stranded at sea. Yeah. So these sponges were moving around, but they were also changing direction and they weren't necessarily just moving downhill. So it was the direction changes we found interesting. We're like, well, how does it decide? How is something as simple as a sponge deciding to change direction? So we had a little ponder about that and maybe these cells are something to do with it. All right, but just for the record, I totally did listen to that episode. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure, mate. I'm sure. Yeah. One of your favourites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next piece was about Benthic Rover 2, which is quite a cool little crawler out at Station M, which is off the California coast, isn't it? Yes. The standard station, Ambari work a lot out there, and this is an Ambari piece of equipment. I didn't know it had been trundling around for seven years. More than that. I did some time on Station M a long, long time ago on a ship called New Horizon, and then a ship called Thomas E. Thompson in 2004, I think. A guy called Ken Smith, who was working on the rover, he was developing that at the time. So the, the rover itself has been going for... 15 years, more than that. I think it's been like seven years that it's been continually, almost always on the bottom, just coming up for a, a data dump and a battery change, and then mm. it's straight back in. It looks like Wally. I quite like that. It's got a bit of a face to it. Yeah, that's a clever thing. It's very cool. It's, it's got a year's endurance, it consumes just two watts when it's running. It's got respirometry chambers, which is basically cores you push into the seabed you look at how the seabed is metabolizing and taking up oxygen and it's got a fluorescent camera on there as well which will with the right light source allow you to see the chlorophyll from the surface material that's fallen to the bottom so it's very much about the nutrient cycling of the deep sea but that's essentially what you need a long-term observation for and it's cool it can move around and they send a wave glider out to check on it 
the quote they used was they send a robot to check on a robot. So it can't transfer much data, but multiple times in that year, they send a glider out just to ping it and make sure it's still where it's meant to be and it's still running. So like a quick diagnostic check. Uh, I thought that was quite cool. I didn't know about that. Nice. Do a flyby. Send a robot to check on a robot. They don't need us at all anymore. Nah. The other piece of news was a new beaked whale has been discovered. Ramari's beaked whale, Mesoplodon iwi. Nice, a nice easy one to pronounce then. Yeah, I love a bit of Latin. So the name is linked to the indigenous peoples of the lands where the, the holotype was found, uh, and the paratypes as well were recovered. The name Ramiri's beaked whale is after Ramiri Stewart, a female Mataranga Maori whale expert who was instrumental in the discovery. And Ramari, in a nice twist of fate, actually means rare event in the Maori language. So that is nice because these are pretty cryptic whales. They don't turn up very often. They're deep diving whales, they're fairly solitary, and they don't make a lot of noise stealthy. So it diverged from True's beaked whale from the North Atlantic. So it's like a, a southern hemisphere version of that. It feeds down to about three kilometers. It seems to be avoiding orca predators. And they found genetic and structural differences in the skull that allow you to tell these two uh, species apart. I did get sidetracked and I thought you'd want to know because in one of the articles I was reading, there was the quote, the Earth's deep ocean remains less understood than the surface of Mars. Nice. Pull that to one side for you and there was a citation. So then I started following that and that took me to Planet Ocean, The Last Frontier. It was uh, originally a quote from Bob Ballard who I think he likes the moon analogy. I think he uses yes. it quite a lot. Big fan, big fan of that, yeah. But in his defense, the actual original quote from this article was just, we have better maps of Mars, which is fair enough. It's still stupid though. It's still not a good comparison, but that that yeah. is true, that we have better maps of Mars, but then it becomes, it remains less understood than the surface of Mars. So like, you can see that step happening. I'm just fed up of everyone telling us we don't know anything about what we do. It's just you've got to think of some reason why you don't know anything about the deep sea. You can't just say, by the way, we know absolutely loads about the deep sea. Why can't you just celebrate the fact that we all work very hard to produce these amazing results and all this amazing insight into what's the biggest ecosystem on the planet? And someone's always there shooting it down going, nah, 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 we know about this barrenless rock floating in a vacuum. We've got better maps of this. It just serves to constantly try to diminish the good work of thousands of people. Well, we can tell our family doctors and our medical experts that we know more than them right now. So uh, it seems to be very in vogue. At least we're not trying to sell people crystals. It's amazing how often you see it. It is. And I, I just thought this was fascinating because we saw that step. It's not a sensical thing to say, like we have better maps of Mars, but at least that bit's true. But in this one leap, it then becomes, we know more about Mars. It's about keeping the deep sea mysterious and justifying somehow that the only reason we'll ever get money to study it is because we know nothing about it when actually we do. Big fin squid has been spotted again. Yay. The Magna Pinhead. I think it was the Monsters one we brought up. There's this brilliant old ROV footage. One of these big fin squid hanging down. It has these long arms and tentacles. It, it lives like a jellyfish, basically. And it's just hanging down in the distance. And it's looking good and terrifying. This was lovely, clear video from the Windows to the Deep expedition in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a NOAA ocean exploration one. And it's just great to see really nice footage. It's still creepy. It's still really weird when they just catch sides of it in the distance. But now they can zoom in, get decent lights on it. It becomes a little bit less horrific. I've got news about that as well. Oh, yeah? So earlier this year, I think I reported this from the field when we were in the Philippine Trench that we saw a squid and we saw it at 6,400 metres making it the first ever hail squid and it's a juvenile magna pinnid. It's a juvenile big fin squid and as always get in touch with Mike Ficchioni when you get these squid and octopus really deep and we wrote it up 
submit to marine biology and it's going to be out next week there we go it's terrible video by the way don't get excited by it it's really really because it was really far away you can totally see it but it's uh, yeah i mean it counts but it's a, that, that puts another i think it's 1500 meters on the squid and also weirdly enough they actually passed over four more hadal octopus as well but again it's six and a half thousand meters so hadal octopus in the pacific in the philippine trench as well as previously it was in the java and the indian ocean so octopus go deep that's really cool this feels like the decapods all over again where it's just like oh yeah they don't go there and then you find it once and they're everywhere yeah and it turns out this group is an important part of the ecosystem down there yeah we don't think these were the normal dumbos they weren't grimpichuthas it was something else don't ask me what they were though i can't remember of course mike will be involved in this one and i, I kind of like that it's not just us that does it this way the quote is Sightings like this one often result in a call for the squid phone. While there's no physical squid phone, it is code for get Mike. I've called the squid phone a couple of times recently, yeah. But luckily he was watching because this is one of the ones that live streams. So he's watching from shore and he could get straight on there and like ID it in, in the field. It's like Batman where you've just got like a massive floodlight on the top of a skyscraper with a squid on it. And you shine it on the clouds. Mike just calls up and says, okay, it's not a giant squid. That's a good one. We'll have to get we'll have to get Mike on. We should do actually because we've spoke about him enough. I know we, we should have summoned him already. Actually, you know what? We'll make that the next episode. We're going to get Mike Vicky on you on the next episode. We have to. Wow. You, right. Okay. Yep. Well, let's get going on that. So they can exceed six meters, but most of that is arms because I've got these huge trailing arms, which could be twenty times the length of the body. So they kind of hang like a jellyfish or they're not sure if they drag their arms and tentacles across the seabed to pick some stuff up they've got really really small suckers on the arms so they they could be sort of planktonic filters. the juveniles don't know the juvenile the one we saw on the bottom of the philippine trench and the one you and i i can do this on the video look i can point my finger at you you and i photographed one in the camera deck a long time ago which we called the squid phone from the ship and went is this the deepest squid ever and mike wrote back saying you've missed it by 22 meters so we slammed the phone down that was a big thin magna pinnet but when they're juveniles, they don't have the long arms. Well, it would make sense that that only works when you're of a certain size. Mm. Like that wouldn't work as a juvenile. I slipped that picture into the squid paper because it's a better shot of it. It explains the bad shot better by showing the good shot from a shallow. Yeah, this is what it should look like. So we're all over it. You know, we've squid phoned this a lot. <laughs> we'll use the squid phone on the next episode. The Atlantic White Shark Conservancy researchers, they're reviewing video footage of their white shark cameras and they saw a very chunky shark. And that is the quote. That, that's a piece of news. But for those who live on the internet, Terry the Fat Shark does exist, is real, and it's been filmed. Wow, I can sleep easier now. Chunky sharks. I know. There's a chunky shark out there. You don't joke about chunky sharks in Australia because there's probably a good reason why they're suddenly very chunky. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's been research going on into how we could live longer by looking at rockfish. So they did genomic analysis. What, by just staring at a rockfish, you can live longer? Is that what you're saying? So you, you just take it, you just grab one in your hand and just stare it right in the eye. You gradually disappear into its eyes. Yeah. Just yeah. leave the story at that. Don't explain the rest of the story because that's better. So if you go, if anyone's okay. out there and they're scuba diving something and they see a rockfish, grab it, stare intensely into its eyes and you will live to be 121 years old. I'll, I'll maybe throw in that they can get to 200 years old and they think it might be the genes at play with immunosuppression which is weird that like to live longer you have to suppress your immune system because it's often your immune system that tears you apart in the end wasn't <laughs> the secret to long life is just don't do anything yeah well be a rockfish i guess just sit on the bottom or and just stare straight into its eyes that's it just be a bit of the rockfish yeah so in a bit of a surprise deep sea find a three foot long mammoth tusk has been found at three kilometers down so about ten thousand feet researchers collected it from the california coast in july this year and again good quote you start to expect the unexpected when exploring the deep sea but i'm stunned that we came across an ancient tusk of a mammoth 
and that was Steve Haddock. I thought the coolest part about that story was they found it ages ago and they saw it, but they couldn't pick it up. And they went back to get it and they found oh. it. That's quite impressive. Yeah, that's a good part. Because that's a pretty it. small object to go back and try and find. Offline, me and you were musing a little bit whether that had the bone-eating worms, whether it had Ossidax, which is specialised to eat whale and originally dinosaur bones. Embarrassed to say we can't work out whether or not Tusk is a bone or not. It would be a tooth, so it would... I think it has enamel, and I don't know what they'd make of that. Really interesting to see what had actually started to colonise that, because obviously, unless it's been recently re-exposed, nothing's been really eating that, because oh. it's been there for millions of years. There you go. Weird things you find in the deep sea. Do, do. I've not seen one of those. Not expected that yet. What's the weirdest thing you've ever found in the deep sea, Tom? Like, usual literary stuff. A hard hat, a boot. We did a weird one in a Porcupine. Porcupine abyssal plane. It was at 4,800 metres. ran a couple of trolls, and one of them came up, and it was just one of these cutest ones where, you know when it comes up and it's, everything's covered in mud and stuff like that, you don't really get to reveal the catch until it's been washed down and people have stored it a little bit. And because that used to be the ocean cruise liner route between the UK and New York, there's quite a lot of clinker and there's quite a lot of debris from these ocean liners and there's loads of glass and stuff there, so you've got to be careful when you're sorting it. And uh, there was one that had, and we found this a few times, just like old leather boots, like hobnail boots, it's like the hand stitched and all the rest of it, and they're kind of weird and they're old, and it gives you that sense of this used to be a very important place. In amongst it all, there was one troll, and it was just lots and lots of red bull debris, but all the red bull debris was written in Japanese. Cool. At some point, relatively recently, over the Pokemon Bustle planes. Some container has gone over. Presumably from Japan, had a tons of like Red Bull cans and bits and pieces and all the rest of it, and threw that across, and we trolled it all up. And we responsibly put it in the bin when we got back to shore. There is a beach in France, I think it is, which for decades now, occasionally Garfield phones wash up. Yes. Novelty phones. And they found the container eventually. So for this episode's interview, we decided to do things a little bit differently. It's actually, it was Susan Casey who came up with the idea, wasn't it? I think so. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was. Sorry, Susan, if it's not. That for a slightly relaxed Christmas episode, we would turn the spotlight on ourselves. Well, because last year we just invited people on and we all just got smashed and that made it very difficult to edit. <laughs> it did, but apparently, apparently people quite liked it. It was good fun. Okay. All right. So this time I'm going to interview you. I should ask you one, then you should ask me one. Okay, like a we'll like like, Unless you want like a sort of interrogation style of thing. I'm going to pour another mulled wine to get ready for this. Well, there's there's been a bit of a development where we've been talking mm. to come up with the five questions. I have been secretly liaising with someone we both know. It turns out the disgusting traitor has been also talking to you as well. Oh, double traitor. Yes, there's a double agent in our midst, and her name is Johanna Weston. I did wonder how she knew. Yeah. Oh dear, because she knows us quite well. This could turn nasty. I know, so at the same time, it's okay, because it means that if there's anything you don't like, and if it all goes wrong and you start crying and uncontrollably sobbing into your pillow, we can blame Johanna for all of it. Excellent. Okay. Uh, and Johanna, we will have a revenge at some point. Alan doesn't forgive. Nah, I can hold a grudge for a long, long time. You do, I've seen it. I've seen it in action. Cool, so... Do you want to go first, or shall I go first? So the first question that may or may not have been from Johanna Weston is, if you didn't study deep sea fish, what animal would you want to kill to satisfy your scientific curiosity? <laughs> oh, um, uh, I have a bit of a zero tolerance policy on parasites. I don't like killing things that I'm... What do you mean zero tolerance so... policy? Does that mean that you don't want parasites in your body? I've surprised people I'm with for like no hesitation killing a mosquito like in a really sort of violent way and they were just a bit surprised having known me they were just a bit like whoa we fleas mosquitoes i'm happy to kill them i'd study parasites maybe mosquito's not a parasite 
It's literally sucking blood. I just see it's an annoying insect. I'd put a parasite as something that lives in you. Something inside you. But that's what you would study, parasitology. Well, that's what I could kill happily in order to do research on it. But if we're just waxing lyrical, one of the first cruises I ever did, I think it was the first two or three, actually, we did a whole bunch of stuff to North Atlantic. And I had the pleasure of not only sailing with Nigel Merritt, who's used to be the fish curator at Natural History Museum, uh, who James McLean, he was on the podcast. He's now taken his job, or has done for quite some time. But the other guy was a guy called Rod Bray, who's a legend in deep sea parasitology. One of those things at a time when a very young me should have taken more of an effort to talk to him about what he does, because, you know, in hindsight, you're like, I was actually at sea with some of these greats and just thought it was normal. <laughs> so... <laughs> That was a cool guy. You know, that's good. That's good that it sort of kept you quite relaxed without knowing that they're greats. Can you remember me after a few pints meeting Jeff Drazen and Paul Yancey for the first time and Where being a bit that? starstruck? That was at the Fish Conference in Glasgow. Oh, was that? Okay. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd been visiting the pubs for a little while and then ran into those guys. I think I'd spoken to them on email, but I think that was the first time I'd met them face to face. And my opening line when flustered was, you're the people from my books. This is like meeting Harry Potter, which is a great like opener nice. to win their respect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't win the respect of Jeff Brazen when I first met him. I met him in Oregon in 2003, and I had a different introduction to Deep Sea because I couldn't care less about Deep Sea at the time. <laughs> I was just tagging along. And I remember going on a, did some sort of field trip. I think Jeff was sat next to me or something. I was just talking to him and stuff like that, and to some dude. And I remember Paul Yancey. We were in the main lecture theatre in Oregon, and I was outside just skiving off because I was fed up and listened to loads of people talk about deep sea and stuff. And uh, he'd come out of someone else's talk and just went off on this rant about how ridiculous it was and everything else. And I just started to think, who is this guy? It was talking about finding shrimp in a brine pool or something. And then, of course, Paul was like, brine's like 330 parts per thousand. There's no way that thing was alive. I, yeah, that's the first time I ever met him. I had a very gradual introduction to deep sea people. I didn't go straight in. I had no idea who anybody was. What I'm saying is I was a mistake. All right, so following on from that one, my question for you is, what was the biggest fork in the road in your life? Oh, that's a difficult one. There's been quite a few of those. And you only see them looking back. I think I know what it was. So after I left university, I was completely utterly disenfranchised with universities entirely. I didn't feel like I learned anything at university at all. It was great fun, but I didn't feel I learned anything at all. For about a year, I worked as a removal man. And high-class office removal was in the oil and gas industry, so we used to dress up all nice. Did all these oil and gas places. It wasn't like your house removals, it was like offices, you know. And uh, after doing that for about a year, I was just knackered because it's, it's really hard work. And I got a job in a, a high school in Aberdeen. And I was like a technician or whatever, what they want to call it, technical staff. Ever. And I was there for about, I guess must have been close to six months. And the people I worked with were the laziest people I've ever come across. I mean, just lazy, lazy people. And there's this guy, I won't say his name, but he was this big guy. And one day I came in. For that day, I was told that they had to move an old TV up to the art department. And I came in 10 minutes early, 10 minutes early. I mean, these guys, they were like, if you came in 20 seconds early, they'd be like, ooh, look at you. Sucking up. So I came in 10 minutes early because I did every day, they just didn't notice. And I walked in to our technician's office, picked up the TV. And it was, those days, it's like a big cathode ray thing, right? So it's pretty heavy, right? But I thought, what the hell? I've just become a removal man for last year. So I just picked up the whole TV and walked it up two flights of stairs and dumped it in the art department. Came back downstairs and sat in the office and they came in for a cup of tea and they're like, where's that TV? And I put it up to the art department and he was like, but that's what we were going to do today. And he was just genu- genuinely upset that I just ruined his day's work by, by doing it before nine in the morning. And later that day, he said something along the lines of, you know, if you've been working here through an agency, when you get to six months, they have to take you on permanently. And that just put the fear of God in me. 
I just like I'm, I'm not doing this job permanently. I'm just not doing it. And then I think it was even that same week I had a, a newspaper. It was a press and journal in Aberdeen, and I was flicking through the job bit, going, "I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here." And there was a job advert, and it was for the what was, at the time was called the Deep Ocean Research Centre, which I'm glad to change the name because it abbreviates to Dork, and that <laughs> became Ocean Lab. And it was an advert from from Monty Priard, who was our first guest on the podcast, and he was setting up this new deep sea centre in Aberdeen, and it asked for a mechanical technician that needed seven years experience. It was that fork in the road was like I shouldn't apply for this because there's no way I've got seven years experience but then I, even when you're young you, you think you're kind of in hindsight stupid but at the same time it was a bit of foresight because I was looking at it going these are the guys I knew because I spoke to them about my honours project whatever and I figured that for that salary no one with seven years experience is going to apply for a job with such a poor salary so I'm just going to go for this because I have to get the hell out of this job and I've still got I took out one of those silver sharpies and I drew a box around the job advert and I still have that piece of paper wow you have the fork in the road yeah, I still remember that guy going, you know, if you play your cards right, you could be made permanent here. All this could be yours. I am off. I am out of here. <laughs> this is not happening. This is not going to be my thing. So yeah, that was definitely a fork in the road, that one. That's wild. At that point, I had no idea what I wanted to do. One of my sort of equally motivating in a horrible way jobs was I was working in a, a lab that would just like, just do testing, basically lab testing. And it was working 24 hours a day. Uh, I started off doing groundwater. And then I was looking at like medical fibers and things like that, just testing them for impurities. You needed some science background in order to do the tests, but it was like bulk, just do these titrations over and over and over again. And it was open 24 hours a day. And I nicknamed it the lab of broken dreams because everybody did that while they were looking for their dream job. Everyone started working there, but the hours were so long and it had this rotating day night cycle. So you were like in a constant state of jet lag, like you do a week on day shift and then you do a week on night shift. And if you weren't careful, before you knew it, you had a partner, you'd had kids, and you couldn't get out. You know, you, your chance to find your dream job had passed by. And so it was full of these people who were really exhausted and sort of not enjoying their work. But every single one of them you talked to had this dream, and you could almost pinpoint the moment where that had gone wrong. Yeah. And it was incredibly motivating and really heartbreaking at the same time, because they were really talented people. But they'd ended up trying to earn some money and working so hard to earn that, that they never had the time and the energy to make the leap, basically. And before you know it, you've got dependence and it all becomes a little bit more scary. You can't just pack it all in and move move to the other end of the country. Come institutionalised or you or you go. Yeah, yeah, you do your six months and then you make carrying a TV last the day. I do wonder sometimes if that guy's still in the high school. Though. Probably. Crushed under a TV. Yeah. My question to you now. Go on. At what age did you start identifying as a human? Wow. Mm. I have some weird early memories, which I think might be false memories, but I have like supposed memories of being less than two. And I think it was a dream, but I, I've got like a womb memory. But identifying as a human, like just becoming aware of your own humanity. Mm. I asked this question for two reasons. Well, one reason really, because I just assumed that you were of alien origin oh. and it takes a bit of a time before you can become accustomed to your human form and then maybe you start yeah. thinking like a human and stuff like that as opposed to whatever planet it is you're from when you've got to sort of invent Clark Kent yeah you've got to come up with your persona hmm. I don't know quite how to go with that I, the, the closest thing I can say I suppose this I suppose this is humanity there's been a few times where like I've seen through the cracks of how we dress up our lives, how we build this like societal bubble to protect us. But in being with someone who's dying or at the birth of your child as well, like these bits that sort of go beyond this societal bubble 
And I feel like behind the scenes, it's like when you peek behind the scenes at Disneyland and it looks like a big, lovely castle. And then you look around the back and it's all just fiberglass and uh, scaffolding and things like that. So there's a few times where like you see outside of our society and you see the like horrible, unfeeling, enormous clockwork of the universe, if that makes sense. The closest I can come to answering that question is, you know, in certain like high impact events, when you realize I am just an animal, I am going to experience death. The universe doesn't care. And you get glimpses behind the scenes. Nice, dark, dark, and totally, utterly irrelevant to Deep Sea's podcast as well. Yeah, we're forgetting where we are a little bit. Yeah. Focus, Tom, focus. It's the mold wine talking. Uh, I did I did rum it up a little bit. Spiced did rum you? in mold wine. The Germans have a name for it. I can't remember what it is, but spiced rum in mold wine goes Or just throwing well. rum into another drink. We used to call this super wine at festivals, where your mixer is also alcoholic. I wish I had that luxury, but I don't even have a single drink now. Oh, that's enough. Mm. Right, so next one for you. Hit me. What flaw would you change about yourself? What flaw? You'd have to identify a flaw first, of course. I was going to say, for someone who's flawless, that's that's a difficult (laughs) question to ask. Probably to stop getting so angry about everything. But at the same time, I think somebody has to. It feels like there's so many stupid things out there. Your anger always seems to have a point. As long as it's a sort of educational kind of rant. I'm kind of happy with that. It's not just hate, but I think there's so much of modern society and even in science, even deep sea science, there's so much sort of do-gooding which is actually quite destructive that is underpinned by nothing but stupidity and it's really becoming overwhelming and it's pushing so many good people into the ditch that I find that really frustrating. Basically, it's a bandwagon thing. It's a, someone comes up with this sort of idea and everyone just goes on and no one questions what they're doing and that's I think that's what frustrates me is, is the amount of things are feels like an injustice, if you like, or just an act of stupidity about it. I think the way I would put it if we're if we're on the similar page is they are performative they're not actually solving the problem they say they're solving and it often like you say they actually hurt the people they're meant to be helping yeah and i think it's letting that bug me is a thing that i would like to not have a lot of the time i really don't care about most stuff but there are some things and you read them and you're just like oh for goodness sake and it shouldn't it shouldn't bug me but it does I shouldn't be so sensitive, that's it. Because, you know, beneath this handsome, rugged exterior does lie a delicate flower. The heart of an artist, of a poet. Yeah, yeah. So, my question to you, if you could have any guest on the podcast, living or dead, who would it be? My initial response is my always go-to cop-out whenever anyone says anyone living or dead. I always cheat on those, and I just, those family members are lost. That I just, any excuse, like it, would, it wouldn't be a great interview probably for anyone else listening, but if I could bring the dead back to life, uh, I've got some favourite dead that I would. But to answer the questions properly and honestly, I like Ray Troll, who does a lot of sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek art, mainly paleontology, but it tends to be marine sort of fish and shark paleontology. Through his art, at least, I really like the sense of humour that's coming through. I think he'd be a really interesting person. That's a Christmas gift, Tom. I'll find out. Is he still alive before I do this? Yeah, and he even has a podcast of his own, so he's not new to it. All right. As a Christmas gift to you, I shall track him down. Everyone's probably <laughs> expecting the phone to ring now. It's like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, we've not prepared. This this really is the episode. There isn't going to be a surprise guest. <laughs> but you, it, interesting right, on that question, though. So I, this is a total tangent, by the way, but I did something today because I was procrastinating in between another series of meetings. This is not one of your five questions, but just as a question. What happened on July 18th this year? No idea. What I did was I took my kids on probably the last ever hike to the Sycamore Gap in Northumberland. And I only know that because I checked my phone. But the significance of the 18th of July this year is because 
from the date I started working in this business to the date that I am expected to retire, that was the halfway point. You're having a midlife career crisis. Yeah. So my entire career consists of 15,249 days. And that was day 7,624.5. Oh, and which direction do you think it's going to go in? I don't know, because I was thinking I'm pretty close to burning it already. I can't know where I can do another 20 years of this. (laughs) So I've got 20 years, six months and five days to go. I can make you a little countdown if you want. I think we should have a countdown clock. Remember we did that on the Falcor? We did. Reprogrammed a dot matrix display. Yeah. We started off with like 500 hour countdown. That was quite soul destroying that, wasn't it? Countdown to the green lizard. Like just watching it count down. Like, <laughs> that, that was, was one funny. of the most incredible jobs we ever did as well. That's so pessimistic. It just felt like a long one. It was just really hardcore, eh? But yeah. Anyway, so the reason why I was mentioning that along a tangent was I think the, the best guest living or dead for a podcast would be to talk to someone at the end of your career. Like you like your kid who would be an adult by then and say what did your dad do because they would only know the good bits right they wouldn't necessarily know all the details they're like oh yeah he was just some grumpy old guy who worked for university or he was a guy who did this 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 that would be a really interesting interview and then at the end we turn you off yeah and that's it (laughs) then you just pull the cord Wow, the halfway point. I know, that's what I was, I was thinking. Like, I think all my best moments have I'm so been tired. used up. You know what I mean? It feels like it's an uphill struggle now. It's like, okay, I'm only halfway. I might have to take a holiday. You might have to start taking holidays. That might have to be it. No, no, yeah. It's hard to do it when you're in a country that's completely locked down and there's nothing but sand and stuff that wants to kill you. You get your first hot Christmas. I've got a rant about that as well. Do you want to have a rant about hot Christmas? It's yeah, the Christmas episode. I mean, Christmas in Australia is pointless, right? Because I always struggle with Christmas anyway because it's layers upon layers of weirdness, right? So it's fundamentally based upon the birth of a supernatural deity in the Middle East and then it's overlaid with Santa Claus, which, by the way, go on Wikipedia and read the origins of Santa Claus. It's quite enlightening. And that's just nonsense as well. I don't really buy either of them. And then you've got the whole Christmas tree, pagan, North Europeans thing going on, on top of that. And yeah, getting your presents and trees, and it all gets a bit weird. And then you've got the snowman and songs about white Christmases and all this kind of stuff. And then when you're in Australia, I was at a kids' Christmas thing the other night, and you're in Australia, and it's like 35 degrees outside, and they've got snowflakes hanging from the stage. And you're like, I felt the same as when we were in Guam that time, and you were driving through yeah. like a hot tropical island in like 100% humidity, and they're playing and dreaming of a white Christmas on the car radio, and you're like, what the hell? You know, and it just the whole thing feels bizarre. So the thing I do like about Christmas is not necessarily anything to do with Christmas. It's to do with this of the end of the year, the bookending of a year, because you know you're going into this winter and there's a sort of certain intimacy of winter where people are inside and you're in the pub and it's snowing outside. But when it's just like 35, 40 degrees outside, it's like, meh, why is everyone singing about snow? But then you do a 180 on that and then you can be in the snow in the UK and everyone's talking about Bethlehem and arid parts of the Middle East. It's just as supernatural as everything else. It's just layers upon layers of nonsense. There you go. Happy thoughts. Merry Christmas, Tom. Merry Christmas. So my next question, do you go to sea just so that you can eat meat without guilt? (laughs) That is Johanna, isn't it? Yeah, Johanna the traitor. Yeah, he's played us both against each other. Yeah. It's certainly not the only reason I go to sea. I do love going to sea. But since turning the veggie corner and allowing that piece of leeway, I could just eat the meals. I could just eat like everyone else. But I'm like a wild animal when the brakes are off. Because I really enjoy meat. I really like the taste of it. You did eat 42 inches of German sausage in one day. I did. I competitively ate meat because of my incredibly complex uh, moral code. It's a big plus to going to see. Right, here's a bit of an open-ended one, but you might have fun with it. You are the undisputed emperor of humanity. True. What are you going to change on the like global level? That's difficult because I know what the answer is. It's all in green. Breeding programs. To have everybody trained in 
mathematics. So whenever they're told something, they would realize that, you know, just because somebody's shouting about this, it's an unbelievable small number of people or it's, you know, a disproportionate amount of concern over something that isn't a big deal. And when you look at stuff on the news and all the rest of it, and just the journalists have an idea of what's actually significant and what's not significant. I don't mean that in significant terms of like Mm. 0.05 p-values, but just have an, an understanding of issues that are genuinely big like huge issues and issues that are just storms and teacups that because of a headline, everybody freaks out over. Yeah, because it gets an emotional response because it will make people angry. Yeah. So then the next thing is to just rein in journalism, try and get good, solid, responsible journalism. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like still plenty of journalism. I think news should be boring and I think it should just be facts. And I think you could you can interview people and you can get people in certain positions you can get their opinion on it because they experienced something that other people didn't but this thing happened and then this thing happened and here is how it has affected this person and they will tell you how they feel but putting emotion into the headline shouldn't be a thing but then i guess when you're competing for clicks and eyeballs and yeah you're trying to sell your product at the end of the day right but i don't think they realize the amount of damage that's caused and that's where people form their opinions. They're, they're forming opinions on that, which it comes back down to science again about science is lame, science is boring, science is not well written, it's not easily digested, so it has to be passed into a journalist who turns it into something stupid and then can just throw it out as a massive curveball to the general society who don't get that this is not a big deal. And then suddenly it is a big deal and everyone's talking about something they shouldn't be talking about. And, you know, that, that's, that's the kind of issue. That's part of why we started this, really, because we realised we didn't have a direct way of communicating with people. It always had to be through a sort of lens of journalism and... Yeah. Often it, things got distorted. The first person to admit that we're wrong all the time. I, I, don't, I also don't like the idea now these days that you can't change your mind. You should change your mind. But the whole point of science is that it's you can constantly you change do. your mind. And this the whole thing about... But yeah, but the whole point is that at some point you learn and you realise that maybe your views aren't right. And that's if you don't learn then does that mean then that everything you know by the age of, let's say, 16, that's it, that's you. Your views are now solid and unchangeable. It should be applauded rather than seen as a sign of weakness if you change your mind. I think it's only really in science you sort of maintain that into adulthood. I think everyone else gets quite galvanised and seems to think that if, you, if you've changed your mind, you've lost. You know, you've lost the argument. Yeah, but it's not you're just you're grown up enough and clever enough and have the intellectual capacity to take on new things and say, actually, I'm going to adjust what I'm thinking about this based on whatever that's come to light. I wonder if we're a victim to our own language or the way we choose to communicate, because by the same sort of sensationalism that you're saying you find frustrating, we have to talk in absolutes. And so that's the same reason why a lot of science has to be reported by a journalist, because when we talk, we're very like non-committal. It drives people mad. You know, oh, this might indicate and this could potentially mean this and da 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 da. But then when we turn out to be wrong, we can change our minds in a heartbeat. But if somebody's, you know, leading a riot and screaming from the rooftops and making a real point of this thing that they believe in, they can't drop that. You know, you can't backtrack from that if you've either made that your whole identity or, you know, you've got some other sort of motivations. It's the same thing you almost see with the the doomsday cults, because you would think the date passes, the date when they say the world's going to end passes, they're going to wake up. But it's such a sunk cost fallacy. People really have a hard time admitting that. So actually, they tend to double down. Some on the fringe will be gone, but the ones on the core, they go even further into it. You know, as as something we touched upon on the last episode, that's how you end up deeper and deeper into layers of conspiracy, because I I can't be wrong. I can't be wrong. I've I've built my whole personality around this. I've lost friends and loved ones over this. I can't be wrong. So... 
now it's this, and now it's this, and now yeah. it's this. And you're buried into sedimentary layers of really unlikely things, <laughs> just so you can't be wrong. If you could be eaten by a deep-sea animal, which one would it be? And describe that scenario very, very slowly and in great detail. I have discussed this with my family, and I have made my wishes known. I used to think it wasn't possible to be buried at sea, but no, it is possible. There are two sites within the UK. There is one just off us in the northeast. My God, you have researched this. This is in my will. This is what I want. I want to be fed. <laughs> uh, okay, that's not that's not funny anymore, because I was... I, I, well, anyway... I wasn't going to do anything with your body, don't worry. Don't worry about it. I reckon you you go to sort of 500 to 1,000 metres, you get to the hagfish zone. I want to be the bait on one of our systems, and I want to have a big cheesy grin and a double thumbs up, and I want you to give that to an undergraduate as a project, and they have to look at hundreds of hours of footage of me with a big cheesy grin with like hagfish going in my nose and out my eye socket and things like that. And they've got to watch the whole thing. So who pays for the therapy of the student? It, no, it's formative. They're, they're going to emerge different. But a thousand meters though, there's a chance there's going to be some pretty big dogfish. It's true. I just like the idea of the hagfish. The Portuguese dogfish is going to come in and take your head. You know it is. Oh, that's true. I reckon they'll get the cheeks. Proper scully grin. Won't be good, would it? What are these two companies that can do this? I'll put it on, but I've, I've looked into it enough. Like you, you have to be, you have to be buried in a like prepared in a special way, because of course, is that just like rubbed in chum? <laughs> you have to be weighted, and you have to have a special coffin, and there's only two sites where you can be dropped. But yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be fed to the beasties once I've been like strip mined for organ donations. So anything that's left gets chucked in the sea. I'll be most of it, I'd imagine. You reckon? Yeah. Nothing's useful. According to my mum's mate, you've got nice teeth, so that's about it. So once we haul your teeth out, the rest of it can just slip over the side. Oh, but I can't do the big cheesy grin then. Yeah. Yeah, just pop out the teeth. Yeah. This this is maybe an interesting one. What piece of media had the biggest effect on you? Music, book, film? Not film. Uh, almost certainly music. So I still remember this day being in a shopping centre in Edinburgh. I don't know, must have been about 10 maybe something like that, 10 years old and seeing Iron Maiden live after death LP having no idea what Iron Maiden is but just by the front cover saying that whatever that is I need to listen to that whatever they sound like <laughs> convinced my mum to buy it for us I don't know how but she did and I remember going back and putting it on the turnstile and it starts off with Winston Churchill's war speech which was very educational Iron Maiden is incredibly educational in terms of like introducing to lots of historical stuff so you listen to Winston Churchill just talking away about finding them on the beaches and finding them on the landing grounds and all this kind of stuff and you're like what on earth is this and then it just goes boom straight into a World War II Spitfire song I still remember to this day just hearing that just kick off and going that we 10 year old Alan yeah that getting his face melted yeah and then going back, you know, a couple of weeks later, I remember my mate Dave, who stole my mate to this day, we were like nine or ten years old, just like swapping cassettes at school, and he came in with like the number of the beast. You know, and this was really, really powerful stuff. And then I remember being introduced to Frank Zappa the first time, because he used to play in bands and stuff. And my bass player at the time, I think it was just when I was about to leave home and go to university, he handed me this cassette and said, like, you know, rock music's one thing, but rock music's relatively easy. In fact, it is, it's very easy. Metal music tends to be, at that point, heavy metal was easy. And uh, he gave me this tape, and she said, Zapper written on it. He says, you won't want to listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. It's going to be a bit harder, a bit more sort of broaden your horizons, sort of thing. And that was me. Four years at university, it just absorbed everything I do with Frank Zappa. Everyone else is arguing over whether or not they like Blur or Oasis. That was a big thing when I was at university. It was whether or not you're an Oasis fan or a Blur fan or whatever it was. But I'm certainly going, that Frank Zappa, that'll do me. 
weirdly enough, in recent times, within the last two years, probably within the COVID, I've just sort of totally discovered corn and slipknot. I don't know how these things passed me by for the last 20 years. How did they creep by you? That was my mainstay at college. I'm sitting in my nice big fancy office at UWA with the glass front and everyone's like, oh, this is the new professor. They don't realise in one year I've got slipknot playing in one year. (laughs) Just going, oh yes, yes, sure. You know, just doing the new drawings for the new ladder, you know, listening to me about slipknot. (laughs) Busy, busy. Yeah, I came into sort of properly reading much, probably much later on. Things like Haruki Murakami, I just think it's fascinating. Yeah, some quotes from the last episode. Yeah, I just think it's just genuinely fascinating. Which is weird because he never wrote in English, he wrote in Japanese. It's all been translated. Uh, it still works. It's just that sort of train of thought of, I think it's quite inspiring in terms of applying the way some of these people write into science. That It, it doesn't have to be this beautiful, polished piece. You just almost like a train of thought. This is part of a puzzle. It doesn't necessarily need to have an ending because you, quite often you don't have an ending. Quite a lot of Murakami's stories don't have a beginning or an end. It's like you just just a parachute and it's someone's yeah you catch a glimpse of someone's life for a while yeah and it never you leave, they don't leave yeah because in, in life stories don't normally get resolved particularly well they tend to just sort of creep in and mm. then creep out again yeah that's where i see what we do scientifically is this things that creep in and creep out you've often said to me writing a paper is, is like telling a story like it's got to be the, the yeah. self-contained narrative but there is a to be continued there is a yeah because you're setting up the next big thing. You don't know what it's going to be, but it will be, it will be something coming up later. I know people who, who genuinely want this nature paper where they just want to take everything they've ever done and encapsulate it into this big, huge, high-impact thing. Fine if that's if you can pull that off. But It would be like existentially terrifying if we knew everything. Like I'd, I'd find that really disappointing to finally know it all. Well, to, to finally know more about the deep sea than you know about the surface of the moon. To finally know that. How do we know when that day has come? I had an idea and I was going to apply to Schmidt Ocean Institute for this. So if Schmidt Ocean Institute are listening, just give me the file core. <laughs> Hand it over. I was going to put in this proposal because Schmidt's weird because they, they tend to accept proposals and then based on the successful ones and geographically where they want to go, that's where the ship will go. So I thought I'd put one in saying, I don't really care where you go, right? So that puts me into whatever geographical category they end up going. And the idea is that we get someone else to pick, like, I don't know, five locations as long as they're, let's say, between three and 6,000 meters, right, let's make it proper deep sea. And we go there with a box core, a multi-core, a lander, a troll, and, I don't know, ROV. And before we go, we get the 10 best deep sea scientists in the world to write in a sealed envelope exactly what we're going to find. And then we go and do the job, and then we write that up, and then we open the envelopes, and I bet you $100 is pretty close. There'll be new species, but they'll be fulfilling the same species, role. But so what? There's going to be polychaetes in the sediment. There's going to be holothurians running around. There's going to be loads of holothurian tracks. There's going to be a few brittle stars. When you've got hard substrate, there'll be a few crinoids. There'll be fish kicking around. The deeper end, there'll be cuscules. The shallower end, there'll be macruids. And th- this can be in a place that no one's ever been before. One of the criteria can be it's got to be a thousand miles away from the next nearest data point. And I pretty much put money on it that we can guess within 95% confidence that we know exactly what's there. And that's how much we do know about the deep sea. And it doesn't matter how much we know about the moon. I like it. If they are listening, if they fancy a, a very unusual one, I mean, still, I challenge it still you. generates the data. What is your greatest victory and most crushing defeat? I think the greatest victory takes me back to hotel room in Samoa 2007, wearing a disgusting, bright-coloured Samoan shirt that we purchased at a market, which I should have spent more time carefully selecting. But anyway, we had this really horrific orange Samoan shirt. I'm standing in a hotel room on my own, thinking all the bits of the first Hadelander are coming to Samoa tomorrow. They've never been properly assembled before and they're going to get moved onto a German ship and they will never all be put together and plugged in for the, you know, until about 10 minutes before we shoot the whole thing to greater than 6,000 metres. 
uh, and I had very little support from anybody else. In fact, pretty much none. And really worrying about that because thinking this is going to be the biggest failure ever. I mean, to be honest, I built two of them. One of them didn't really work, but at least I got it back. And eventually, it went on to do something quite significant. But on that job, it was it did feel like it'd been absolutely hung out to dry, which was probably the best career move ever. We shot it down at 6,000 metres and saw these bizarre prawn things. We're like, okay, that's the only thing it tells you in textbooks that don't exist at this depth. So that was a bit like, kind of like, hmm, okay, that's, that's a thing. But we're there to look for fish. And the second day, threw it down. And, and in those archaic days, we used to have to go out on deck and put a jacket over your head to keep the sun off a laptop and plug the laptop into the lander and then basically watch it download and as it's downloading you can see each file and you can sort of randomly just click on a few files to see if it's worked and then I remember just clicking on a file and just seeing this tail move past the, the screen I'm like that's it that's the first time anyone's ever filmed a fish in the trenches and I remember sort of shouting over <laughs> from inside the, the jacket so we did it we, we actually did it and if we'd lost the lander the next day, it didn't really matter because at that point, that what that's what it was about is whether he could actually do this or not. So that was probably the biggest victory in terms of, I don't really care what other people think, but in terms of going to bed that night with a smile on your face going, that's a thing. And about a few days later, we, we shot the whole thing at 10,000 metres, which at the time was a really big deal. Some of the big institutes have done stuff like this before, but certainly me being sort of a young, naive idiot, I had no idea we could ever pull this off. I remember going up to the bridge. It must be something like 3 o'clock. It took so long to come up. I fired it at 3 o'clock in the morning, so it would be up in time for everyone else to pick it up and just pushing the acoustic release thing. And it came back saying 99999 meters. It didn't have a five-digit thing on it. And then I sort of sat there for a couple of minutes, fired it again, and it said 99998. And then it was like 999, you know, and, and so on and so on. And it was coming off the bottom. And it's like, at, this, at that point, it's, I don't even care if the camera worked or whatever worked, but it doesn't matter because of something I built went down 10,000 metres and back. And that was a big deal. I thought that was cool. That was the deepest diving UK vehicle at that point, wasn't it? Well, for oh, a yeah, while. Yeah, by a long way, yeah. yeah. It might have been Europe at that time. Could, could well possibly have been. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really care, to be honest. I still don't. I, it was more of a personal thing. I just really wanted to do it. And I, just, I remember, bizarrely, this comes back to Iron Maiden because the, the guy on watch was this big gorilla of a man, big German guy. He was like the third officer or something, and he was on watch in the middle of the night. And for me, this was a really big deal because I really wanted to release this lander. And he was just playing Iron Maiden just like excruciatingly loud on the bridge. <laughs> just like, like yeah, I'm totally into this, but like... Not can now. You, can you give me five minutes? And he's like, no. Nine. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so that was cool. In terms of biggest failures, there's been many, many, many failures. But I think success is always pickpocketed out of the trousers of failure, right? I think that's that's how it works. The more times you fail, the more you value the successes. So, you know, we've, we like the whole whalebone experiment. We put an entire minky whale down for 440 days. That was going to be a really big thing. And it came back after 440 days and the ship I was on, they just went straight for it and ran it down. Just went straight, just smashed the whole thing to bits. And we managed to get most of the vehicle back. We got most of the skull back and just hadn't really colonised. And it was it was such a big sort of, I don't know, big expectations for that. It didn't really work. There's so much more risk with the long-term stuff. Yeah. A long time to, to lose out on, but that's that's how the long-term studies are. I think you learn more from having trashed a lot of gear. You understand it better, right? Yeah. I think the first couple of times I lost landers, I took it pretty hard. I was pretty young and it was like, that people are relying on this. Uh, that hits you pretty hard. But after a while, you realise it's just gear, right? And what you're doing is inherently risky anyway. There's a couple of landers that I've lost that after like 10 minutes, you realise it's gone. And you don't even have that whole psychological thing about, oh, we should just keep pinging it for the next 10 hours, just in case, you know, you know when it's gone and you just go, okay, it's done and move on. Go and do something else. Go get a beer. There is still one question because there's oh. the one from Larkin. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, it's, it's to both of us. In honor of the classic movie, A Christmas Story, what was your Red Ryder BB gun when you were a child? What was the one gift that you wanted so bad more than any other gift in the whole wide world? I've never heard of that film. <laughs> it's a really popular American one, and I found it quite depressing. It's a BB gun. All he wants is a BB gun. What, to shoot somebody? Well, yeah, I guess so. Well, the style of the time. It's not really in the spirit of Christmas, but okay. Okay, what shoes on? It's quite a boring one, but like, I was so excited to get the Mega Drive, which was the, the master system to anyone listening uh, in the States, that I could like feel the minutes passing. I was very, very excited to get that. And to this day, I have strong affection towards Sonic the Hedgehog 3, which I think is art. <laughs> That's quite an unhealthy... It is, it is, but that was that was the present I was like super, super excited about. There's one that I remember, but I probably remember it because there's a photograph of this. I don't, I, no, I do, I do remember. I, you know what, the days you used to write a Christmas list. Yeah. And my, my kids do it now as well. They think that if they sneak something on the Christmas list, that Santa's going to get it for them, right? And stuff like they that. can get by you. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of remember with a felt-tip pen writing, I really wanted a Millennium Falcon. Because this is like early age, right? It's, in, it's somewhere between, I guess, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. But I remember sort of saying, going, oh, I want Millennium Falcon. And then... Come Christmas Day, there was a Millennium Falcon, which is like the coolest thing ever. The, the <laughs> single coolest thing ever. And even now my kids play with it, the same one. Oh, nice. It still exists, so they're still playing with the same one. So that goes to show that if you sneak stuff on your Christmas list, it can happen. My parents always tell a story of, I think it was like Christmas Eve, putting my little sister to bed and overhearing her whispering to Santa, oh, and please don't forget my rocking horse. I really want a rocking horse. And that's the first they'd heard of it. <laughs> It's like she was testing them. It's like she was testing if Santa was real. So she deliberately wasn't telling them, but then was secretly telling Santa what she really wanted. And yeah, in lovely Christmas film tradition, I think my folks sped out and managed to get one in time for the morning. Why is it for a 24 hour rocking horror shop Christmas Eve? Anyway, so we do have had quite a lot of emails from various fans over the course of the year. And we've never really read them out, so we probably should. My favourite quote so far is from member John Quentin, yeah. the author. He described our podcast as being duplex intellectual raconturialism at its best. <laughs> A cracking quote. Well, we still need to add that to the website. But in terms of thinking back over the last year's worth of podcasts, I thought that episode was the hardest. Remember the one we did the submersible special with the John Quentin and Tim McDonald and we doubled up on Patrick and Frank Lombardo. And the reason why it was hard, it was not because of the guests. So we're all amazing. It's because under the surface, we were suffering from horrendous technical issues. <laughs> and uh, I had this horrendous echo that every time I said anything, it, I just screamed back into my own ear two, two seconds later. If you had to pick a sort of worst episode we've ever done, for me, it would be that one because it was just it's so hard trying to hold a conversation when you just can't concentrate. Well, John had to sort of talk to himself for long periods because he dropped off the call. Well, it was a double whammy with John Quentin as well, because he, there was something else wrong, wasn't it? He, he kept dropping out, I think, or we kept dropping out, or whatever it was. It was a whole other thing, but yeah. Despite how professional and slick this seems on the surface. Yeah, we <laughs> We've never had one issues. go without some technical issues. Yeah. So there's someone else who wrote in who's got an impronounceable Gmail account. I have no idea who they are. They didn't sign off, but they said that they loved our podcast, which is lovely. And they loved learning about the deep sea, and we, apparently we've taught them a lot about some of the misconceptions and this person has trouble sleeping, so they put on her podcast and listen until they fall asleep. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure how to take that. <laughs> no, that's a pretty standard podcast fare. That's pretty much is it. Like is that okay? It's podcasts. not like you're so boring that I use you to fall asleep. Yeah, that's fine. Right. But the same person said they had major anxiety about climate change, and sometimes they have to skip our episodes because we sometimes make a lot of jokes about climate change. Is must making light of it not helping? Yeah. 
So we're sorry for making jokes about climate change in it because it's no laughing matter. However, every cloud has a silver lining because as the more sea level rises, the deeper the deep sea gets and the deeper the sea gets, the more Tom and I have to talk about it. So it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> It'd be wonderful when there's so much more that falls within our remit. Exactly, yeah. There's, there's, um, there's, a, there's a positive spin to that story. And make it, making light of things is very much the, the coping strategy. Yeah, the deep sea's getting deeper. Strips them of their power. If you can make light of them. No, I did send a nice email back to say that if we didn't make light of it, it can be very depressing. There was another good email came in that said the Deep Sea Podcast is something they've looked forward to each month for over a year. And it's excellent. And it's entertaining and it's educational and it's lovely, lovely, lovely. And then at the end she said, and Don Walsh is becoming my favourite part of the podcast. Oh, that's a, that's a running theme, yeah. Yeah. So it's not you, Tom. What I'm saying is it's not you and it's not me. It's, it's Don. Yeah, regularly told to to our faces that, um, that You're not yeah, the best Don's thing. the best bit. Yeah, you, you, you just fluff till we get to Don. It's just Don build up. With that in mind, what's Don got to say about Christmas? Hello, this is oceanographer and explorer Don Walsh. And for this broadcast, I'd like to tell you a small sea story about a most unusual Christmas. In November 2002, the Russian icebreaker Captain Klebnikov, we call it KK, left Christchurch, New Zealand for a 73-day circumnavigation of the Antarctic continent. There were 94 of us on board, not including the Russian crew, and my wife and I were on the expedition staff as lecturers and naturalists. Among our guests and the European hotel staff, we had many nationalities represented. Our circumnavigation would begin with the West Antarctic, a place that's rarely visited. In fact, sometimes it's called the far side. Our trip would be the 11th time a circumnavigation of the Antarctic continent had been done since Captain Cook did it in 1773-1774. Between those two legs of his expedition, he laid up in Tasmania. In fact, the first time this circumnavigation was done all in one season was not until 1930, and the KK, our ship, had done it two of those 11 times. Well, by Christmas time, we've been aboard nearly a month, and we are a convivial group now, shipmates, and no longer a bunch of strangers. We had more than 18 hours of daylight at that time of year, so we spent a lot of time out on the ice and ashore at research stations. Sure, it was cold, though rarely below freezing. That is, if the wind was not blowing. And after a while, you do adapt to cold temperatures. In addition, the ship gave us some very nice parkas that kept us pretty warm whenever we were outside. So for our Christmas celebration, the Germans and Scandinavians on board organized a Christmas market on the bow. As you know, Christmas markets are a great tradition in Northern Europe during that time of year. And these uh, staff members and, and guests wore their traditional garb, colorful. The ladies had candles in their hair, although I think they were probably some kind of electric lights. And all of this was accompanied by lots of carrying on and joy. And they sang songs for us, some of their traditional songs. And this was all well lubricated by great quantities of glühwein. That is the hot mulled wine. It's so popular this time of year in their homelands. And since we're outside in the cold, it all fit together very well, and after a few uh, cups of the uh, hot wine, we didn't feel the cold much anymore. And meanwhile, back aft, the two helicopters we had on board were moved out to the landing pad, and the hangar was converted for an indoor party after our Christmas dinner. 
A traditional Christmas dinner was served in a well-decorated dining and lounge area, and the decorations included a rather nice tree, and we were all invited to help with the decorations. There was even some limited costuming among the guests, but due to baggage limitations of getting to the other end of the world, most of us didn't carry that sort of stuff with us. And most of us thought that Christmas would be celebrated on board with some sort of nice dinner, but that was all. And so we weren't quite prepared for the rather elegant onboard celebration that did take place. There was not much gift giving, but uh, each of us got something. And yet those modest gifts seemed very special, considering when and where we got them. So it was a most unusual Christmas, and one none of us will ever forget. And that's all for now. Thank you for listening. And to all of you, happy holidays and a Merry Christmas. So that's what Don has to say about Christmas. What does Larkin have to say about Christmas? Happy holidays to all you listeners out there. Larkin here, your local salty sailor, with another tale from the high seas. Holiday edition. So first off, this is an embarrassing story. I normally don't tell people, but the holiday spirit has taken a hold of me and I'm in the mood to share. Let me set up the scene for you. It's Christmas Day, and the adventure cruise ship that I'm working on is docked in Mexico. So we got the Feliz Navidad thing going on. We had a little uh, Christmas party since we were docked, and none of us, you know, had to keep watch or anything. So uh, those of us that weren't working got to enjoy this Christmas party. And people are dancing, they're exchanging presents, people are laughing, telling awesome stories. And I'm in an extra, extra good mood because the next day, I get to go home and I've been on the ship working, you know, 12 hour shifts, seven days a week for a while. So I am pumped. I might have even had a couple glasses of wine, you know, for old St. Nick and all the hard work I had done. Because usually on this ship, we don't, we are not allowed to drink at all. But since we were docked and it was Christmas, they were letting a few of us have some some wine if we weren't on shift. And I wasn't on shift. So I have my wine and I'm enjoying the evening. And then I, you know, go to sleep. And the next day, four other crew members and myself, all the ones that were leaving that day, we all get in a rental car and we drive two hours to where the uh, the airport is. So where we dock is is two hours away from the airport. So we had to make this drive. We do the drive and it's a lot of fun. We have the music blaring. Things are going great. And then we get to the town where the airport is. Now, our flights don't leave until early the next morning. I think my flight was going to be at like five o'clock in the morning. So we all had hotel rooms. And so we party, party, party. And then I fell asleep safe and sound in the comfort of my room. This is where things go south. <laughs> At 3 a.m., I pop up like the woman, the mother in um, Home Alone when she yells, Kevin, in the airplane. That was me, except I was yelling, passport. That's right. I had done the ultimate sailor rookie move. I left my passport on the ship. And what's worse is the ship was already long gone. The ship had left and it would not be back in port for another week. So there I was stuck in Mexico um, without a passport, wanting just and dreaming of going home because as sailors, we spend a lot of holidays on the ship. So it was a really big deal for me to get home. So I quickly gather my luggage, get, gather everything up, and just leave and just beeline it right to the airport. I walked there. I think it was like, you know, was, anyway, I beelined it right to the airport. And I talked to countless ticket agents and they were all so kind and they understood, you know, they understood that I wanted to get home. There was family. It was very important. And they were all trying to help me and work with me. The best plan that we could come up with was me flying from Mexico to Tijuana 
getting off the plane in Tijuana, taking all my luggage, getting in a cab, crossing the border on foot, because apparently you can get in, I think you can get into the USA on foot. I, I don't know if that's still a, still a thing, but at the time it was. So I was going to walk with all of these bags from being on the boat. And I had like three bags. So it's going to, I was going to look like a Sherpa crossing the border at midnight. And then I would try to catch a cab really quick, get to the San Diego airport and then fly home. With this plan, I also lose my, my passport that I have. It's now, it wouldn't even count anymore. So I actually lose that on a passport and I have to try to get like another one because I'm supposed to be back on the boat in like three weeks. So it was just, it was a really bad plan. It was a terrible plan. And I told this plan to my mother through sobs and tears on the phone. And she's a way more logical person than I am at this moment because she's horrified by the plan. She thinks it's a terrible plan. And she asked me if I, if I felt safe where I was in Mexico, like if, if I was, if I was going to be good staying there. And I was like, yeah, like I know this area, this is great. Like I'm totally fine here by myself, but I just didn't want to miss Christmas with you all. I didn't want to miss the holidays. And it all turned out, it all turned out fine. And that's how I ended up spending a holiday season in Mexico by myself. All was well, though. Everybody that all the people in Mexico were very kind. And I ended up doing some horseback riding and, you know, and, and seeing turtles hatch on the beach. And it was it was amazing. I was doing hikes and stuff. But um, I did miss my family that year. That's how I spent one holiday in Mexico by myself. Happy holidays to all the listeners out there. And um, and I'll see you all next time. And that concludes the Christmas special of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any questions or comments, or just for a chat, our social media and our email is in the show notes. Whatever you're celebrating this time of year, have a great break. And as ever, I abyss you already, and we'll deep see you next time. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, then we can support that with technology, know-how and planning. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can help with storytelling, fact-checking, podcasts, yelling from the rooftops, however you'd like to do it. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. The origins of Santa Claus according to Wikipedia Early representations of the gift giver from church history and folklore, notably St. Nicholas, merged with the English character Father Christmas to create the mythical character known to the rest of the English-speaking world as Santa Claus, which is phonetically Sinterklaas in Dutch. In the English and later British colonies of North America, and later in the United States, British and Dutch version of the gift giver merged further. For example, in Washington's Irving's History of New York in 1809, Sinterklaas was anglicised into Santa Claus, a name first used in the US press in 1773, but lost his bishop's apparel, and was first pictured as a thick-bellied Dutch sailor with a pipe and a green winter coat. Irving's book was a parody of the Dutch culture of New York, and much of this portrayal in his joking invention was his interpretation of Santa Claus as part of a broader movement to tone down the increasingly wild Christmas celebrations of the era, which included aggressive home invasions substantial premarital sex leading to shotgun weddings in areas where the Puritans, waning in power and firmly opposed to Christmas, still held some influence, and public displays of sexual deviancy, 
The celebrations of the era were derided by both upper-class merchants and the Christian Puritists alike. Santa 